Well, it's good to be here today, First City, and uh, like I said, my name's Nathan, and I'm a Pensacola native, but, uh, you know, I live in Atlanta now. It's good to be back here and have some seafood that's not frozen, so uh, fish sticks don't cut it, y'all. Got to be caught in the Gulf. So I want to get you kind of caught up with me. Some of us, we probably crossed paths back in the day. When I say I'm from Pensacola, I'm actually from Pace. So any, any Pace people out there? Yep. Now, when you move outside of the Panhandle of Florida, everything like west of Destin is basically Pensacola to the rest of the south. So you guys know there's a difference between Pace and Pensacola, but I imagine if I were to tell you exactly where I'm from in Atlanta, you wouldn't really understand where Forsyth County is. So I'm like in the Pace, the, as Pace is to Pensacola, so is Forsyth County to Atlanta. And uh, Atlanta's, we've been there for about five years, and we've lived a couple of places. I think we're digging our roots down deep, and my wife and I have been married for nine years. We've worked at churches in Pensacola, South Florida, Las Vegas, and that's where we had our firstborn son, Declan. He's five now, and he's proof that what happens there in Vegas doesn't always stay there. So you can't trust, can't trust him there. But uh, we started thinking about you know, where we want to dig our roots, where we want to have a family, and, and we started realizing, you know, when you're outside of the South, there's no such thing as sweet tea. If you ask a server for sweet tea, Outside of the South, they direct your attention to the sugar packets there on the table. And that is just, that's a heresy. The Proverbs talks about seven things the Lord detests. Well, iced tea with granulated sugar piled at the bottom is an eighth thing that the Lord really frowns upon. They didn't even have a Chick-fil-A in Las Vegas, but they do now. So the missionaries are getting their job done. <laughs> Christian chicken made it out West. So God brought us back to the south where we had our, our second born, Adelaide. They're both back there terrorizing the children's ministry today. I gave them my mom's phone number to come and get them because I'll be up here preaching. So uh, let's, let's pray for the kids' ministry volunteers. So let me just tell you about how awesome it is to come back to the south, specifically when I get around my, my Pensacola people. Um, there's a different kind of southerner here in the panhandle. Like, let me just kind of frame this up for you. Like, we're the only Southerners who are, like, beach access. So at the high school I grew up at, Pace High School, it wasn't uncommon to see trucks with a surf rack and a gun rack. You know, like, that's, you kind of got this, like, there's this slowness of life to the South, which I really appreciate. Like, it's not a big deal whenever there's a really long wait at Cracker Barrel. Let's just go on the front porch and, and rock and just wait, play a little checkers, but then you add that with kind of the laziness of living next to a beach, and, and you have Pensacola, right? Like, that's us. We are a very unique kind of southerner. Like, I remember in high school seeing kids with a camouflage shirt and board shorts, and that was like an acceptable apparel. That's the only, you only see that kind of southerner when you live close to a beach. Uh, I, any of y'all from uh, Calhoun County? few uh, counties over toward Tallahassee. Well, that's where my real family's from. And we think like backwoods of North Florida. That's them. I'll never forget. Like I've grown up in church. Like all I've ever done is church with the exception of a brief employment in high school at Little Caesars where I held a sign by the road that said $5 hot and ready. And uh, I've, I've since had therapy about that. It's a weird thing for a 17-year-old to hold up. But uh, all I've ever done is church. All I've ever done has been employed by the church, so I feel like I've seen it all, but the weirdest thing I've ever seen came some, from some of my uh, southern friends over in Calhoun County, this nice lady named Miss Christine, and I'm, I'm not even sure if Miss Christine is still alive, but she thought it'd be good for me and one of the other pastors to have this 2008 calendar, the ladies of Calhoun County, 
And um, this isn't a counter you would expect to see hanging in a pastor's office. Let's just leave it at that. Like, their, their clothing was like American flags, and that's about it. Like, and she thought her pastors would love this. Here, Pastor Nathan, here you go. And I'm like, I, it's, it's not it's, uh, a censor. Like, you can't unsee that. So I've seen just about everything in church world. I've fallen off stages when I'm preaching. No lie, there's videos that are circulating, not on one occasion, but, but two occasions. So I feel like I've just about seen it all when it comes to growing up in church. Like I was more likely to get out of Monday school with a tummy ache than Sunday school. You know what I'm saying? Like how many of y'all raised it at a house like that? We're like, you, you're, you're in there on Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and for the Wednesday uh, prayer gathering. Man, y'all need to bring back some food ministry, some dinner on the grounds. I miss that kind of church. But I think here's the problem. In this, it's specifically in the Bible Belt. When you feel like you've seen it all, you can kind of lower your expectations, you know. And, 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 and one of the dangers I've seen is the same thing that happened when Jesus came back to his hometown to do ministry. They were like, oh, that's just Jesus, the son of a carpenter. And I think it's really easy to think it's just another Sunday, it's just another sermon, just another worship song, just another Bible study. And the big thing that I've learned, the danger of, of letting church just become part of that box that we check off and just part of the routine is, is when we lower expectations, we, we, we get what we expect. See, those people that day when Jesus was trying to do miracles in his hometown, they just thought of him as the son of a carpenter, not the son of God. So the Bible actually said that he could not do any miracles there. So my hope, my prayer, they would just not be another Sunday, that we would raise our expectations of what God wants to do when God's people get together. Amen? So with that being said, let's pray and let's dive into Acts chapter 2. God, I would ask that you would speak to us today. The same way I'm using this microphone, Lord, just use me as an instrument for your will to be proclaimed and let us be ready to answer with yes, with immediate obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be wrapping up this Nobody series. And man, didn't the worship team crush that song? That's so good. It's catchy. As I was listening to it, thinking about, I'm just a nobody, trying to tell everybody about somebody who saved my soul. I mean, I just immediately think back to this ragtag crew that was the early church. Like, you know, Christianity wasn't founded with, with a lot of prominence and influence in their society. It was... A re- it was a religion of mostly slaves and people of the working class. And it was this, this gathering place that, that said, even if you feel like you're enslaved politically, you can fe- find freedom spiritually. It wasn't the people that you would think of the, the obvious candidates to build a movement that is still going strong today, 2,000 years later. Like, name any other belief system. Name any other club, society, or organization that has been going strong and still growing 2,000 years later. Now, you, if you think of that, you would think of people with power, people of, of, of just eloquent talk, people with credentials, with degrees. But no, it was, it was fishermen, tax collectors. It's kind of the, the, the people that were overlooked, those who were picked last for dodgeball. So if you identify with that, if you know what it's like to assume that that, that that opportunity, somebody more qualified, somebody more spiritual, somebody with greater credentials, surely that's who God wants to use, and I'll just cheer them on from the sidelines. What I want to show you is that in this team, in this family of God that we're looking at in Acts chapter 2, the original Christian church, there was no second string. There were no bench warmers. It was not a spectator sport. Church was something that they didn't just attend on the holy day. No, church was something they lived out every single day. So what's happening in this moment in time in Acts chapter 2 
It was just a few months after the Easter story where they were celebrating Passover. We had the Last Supper. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, had the, the, the mock trial, was crucified, died, rose again three days later, and then started appearing to his, his, his apostles in upper rooms. Like, can you just imagine how scary that might be where Jesus, like, appears in a room like, Jesus, they, they probably had to keep an extra tunic around just in case they had an accident. Jesus is appearing out of nowhere. Downing Thomas has his moment, and then Jesus is ready to go back to heaven about 40 days later. About 500 witnesses are gathered as he says, the helper's coming, the Holy Spirit's going to come and help you. And when that happens, you're going to go where? Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. Making disciples, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That assignment was given. And the Holy Spirit was promised. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls. And Peter preaches, and about 2,000 people get saved. And the church begins. That church is our heritage. That church is our reference point. It's kind of what we get our marching orders to the way the gathering of the believers is supposed to be. And I recently heard a pastor say that if you were stranded on a desert island and never attended a church service in your life, and all you had to reference for Christianity was the book of Acts, and let's say you get rescued, you come to America and you start checking out Christian churches, would we be recognizable compared to what the early church was doing and experiencing living out? Well, let's see. Let's compare our church membership and our discipleship journey to become more like Jesus with those that were the original followers of Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. There's a lot here in these seven verses or so that I just want to ring it out for all the theological goodiness that you can get out of it. Because when, when we look at what started the movement of Christianity, it was these fishermen, tax collectors, ex-prostitutes. Like These were just the, the bottom of the barrel. The, the, the church of the day, the synagogue of the day, had looked over these people and assumed they'd never accomplish anything great. But Jesus saw something in this group of underdogs and this group of nobodies. And he knew if his Holy Spirit could be turned loose. Something would change the world that would rock our reality even to this day. So let's, let's, let's look at this, this sequence of events. Let's kind of use it as a little bit of a checklist of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves as Christ followers. Like one of the things I want you to notice in that scripture there is it says that they had favor in their community. And guess what? It was more than just PR. They didn't have social media. They didn't really have an, a news media. There wasn't journalists covering this new church plant in Jerusalem. No, the favor that they had was the opinion that outsiders had looking in, saying, man, like, when, when, when Joe was going through a hard time, they all just kind of had a garage sale and, and raised some money to help this guy out. Like, my mom doesn't even love me that much. Like, moms, when's the last time you sold something to put me on a cruise in the Sea of Galilee? Like, this just wasn't happening. There's something that was strange and just stopped people in their tracks for all the right reasons. 
Like it's okay to stand out when you're standing out in the name of love and caring and generosity and sacrifice and putting others first. There was a love that was radiating and that was emanating inside this original group of Christ followers that the Bible said translated into daily people were converting. Daily people were getting saved. I'm so grateful they put that there in this historical account that it wasn't just daily their church was growing. See, a lot of times we focus more on just getting people in the doors and hoping that the pastor will do all the work. See, it was more than just getting a room full of people. Daily, people were getting saved. So the only way this whole daily thing is happening is that people realize it's not just the pastor and the apostles who are supposedly called into ministry. No, they realize every member is also a minister. So in their workplaces, when they were fishing, when they were building their chairs, when they were doing their everyday to-do lists, the way they carried themselves, the way they loved, the way they led their homes, caused people to scratch their head. Say, man, what, what, what is it about these Jesus people? What is it about these Christ followers? I, I, I want more of that. I think there's something that is attractive when we, with no strings attached, start meeting the needs of those in our community. I think there's something that makes our way of life almost irresistible when we take inventory of what's happening in our community and, 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 and stop just praying for God to do something. Stop praying for revival, but go out and start living out our faith in, in tangible ways. When we hear the cries of the poor and the needy and the oppressed, when we hear about the needs of people that we are going to church with and we start meeting those needs, when we start realizing, man, there's a lot of unanswered prayers and it's happening on our watch, something powerful begins to happen. And a series of moments become a movement, and that movement gains momentum. I think that all happens because when we realize that God may want you to be the answer to someone's unanswered prayer. Inside this church, inside this community, outside the walls of this church, there are people that are hurting. There are people that are marginalized. There are people that feel forgotten. And as we study church history, it was those people that the early church was just relentless to go after to be an answer to their unanswered prayers, to be tangible expressions of the love and the grace of Christ. They looked around, they, 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 they saw problems, they found ways to meet those needs. It says they were devoted to one another. So if, if someone, if, if life pulled the rug out from somebody, they didn't have Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. They just did a good old Middle Eastern garage sale. They didn't even have garages back then, so uh, Adobe Brick Hut House sale, I don't know what it was, but they... The things that made their life better and more convenient, the amenities of life, they would sell it to raise money to help those that were in need. And when you think about Pensacola, Florida, and the great nonprofits, and the rescue missions, and the shelters, and the social workers, and the government programs, there's a lot of really good things that are happening. But, but can I just be honest with you? The reason we got all these welfare programs and all these justice missions is because the church, like we focused more on this gathering, and we lost sight of that mission of being an answer to those unanswered prayers and, and pointing people to Jesus. One of the things that I do at my church in Atlanta is I oversee our missions ministry. And there's always an organization, there's always somebody, I bet you have this every Sunday in the lobby or in the coffee shop where somebody's like, you know what, Pastor Rick, 
Let me tell you about this cause that our church should support. Let me just tell you what this ministry is doing in this school. Let me tell you about this mission trip. Let me tell you about these missionaries. Let me tell you about this nonprofit. And you know what? There's no shortage of problems that need to be solved. There's no shortage of, of partnership opportunities. And, and, and knowing what I know about your church, your leadership probably wants to say yes to all of them. But oftentimes when they say, you know what, this church should do, what they're really saying is, you know what, you should do. It, it, honestly, you remember this old commercial? Actually, you know what? I'm going to show it to you. This is what it kind of sounds like when people are bringing their problems to the church. Check this out. There's a robbery. I'm, I'm not saying that I want to do something about it, but Pastor, let me tell you what you should do about it. I, I'm not saying that I've got time in my schedule. Like, look, I already come to church. Isn't that enough? Like, I put some money in the bucket. Here's what you should do. Now, what if, what if you became we? It takes no talent. It takes no energy. It takes no sacrifice of time or resources to spot any one of the numerous problems that could be happening in our community. Well, what would it be like if we begin to see ourselves as part of the solution if we recognize that we have a heritage of our faith of God using average everyday nobodies like you and I to solve these problems and ultimately point people toward the hope that is found in Jesus being in Atlanta we live next to the, one of the busiest airports in the world and you keep on hearing this intercom voiceover saying, you know, do not leave your bags unattended. If you see bags that are unattended, say something. Find a security member. And I think we have kind of subconsciously gotten to that kind of uh, mode of operation when it comes to church. If we see something, I better say something. Look what the church should be doing. But what if we decided to see something and do something? What if we decided to embrace the fact that when you name Jesus the Lord of your life, we talk about being born again. Well, upon being born again, you're endowed with what the Bible calls spiritual gifts. And those gifts are not just for us to enjoy. Those gifts are to be a part of the solution. Those gifts are to be an answer to someone's unanswered prayer. Those gifts are what God wants to use to mobilize, to confront the chaos in our world and identify solutions where people can not only have their physical needs met, but hopefully by those physical needs being met through outreach and mission work, we can ultimately open the door to the spiritual need being met of introducing them to Jesus and presenting the good news of the gospel to him. It's just too easy to spot problems. What if we began to solve problems like the early church did out of a devotion to one another, out of a willingness to get off of the bench and get in on the game? Yeah, you may find somebody who's more qualified than you. Yeah, you may find somebody who can, who can recite scripture with greater eloquence than you. Yeah, there may be somebody who's been on more mission trips and knows more of the Bible and is more theologically trained. But guess what? I, I, one of my, this, I didn't coin this saying, but someone told this to me as a young man. And it was catalytic in my leadership journey because I said, I, I don't really feel qualified for this, man. Like, this is leadership. You're asking me to stand on stage and lead people in worship. And this mentor said, you know, God doesn't. Uh, call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And I just want to like drop this on you. This, if you know Jesus as Lord of your life, there's a calling. There's a calling in your life. And it's not just for those with microphones. It's not just for those with a title of pastor. When we say yes 
to Jesus being the Lord of our life, we say yes to our life also being on mission. See, the early Christ followers knew that by saying yes to Jesus, there was a good chance that their life was going to be cut short. But knowing and following Jesus for a short time was better than anything else. They didn't just say yes to Jesus protecting me from hell and the afterlife. No, they said yes to Jesus being their Lord and their guide for this life. So just remember that day that you prayed that prayer at that VBS when you were a kid at Grandma's church or when you came down the aisle and Pastor Rick was talking about Jesus and you accepted the Lord into your heart and had this repentant experience. Yes, I, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Yes, it's, there's... By grace, through faith, we're saved. There's no requirement on our life to receive that forgiveness and, and experience repentance. But once we cross the threshold of faith, we've said yes to his mission. That whole idea of, of, of being sent out as missionaries locally, regional, and globally, it's not just for the people that we support as missionaries. No, it's for the people that work next to you at your cubicle. The people that live next to you in the cul-de-sac. When you're sitting, cheering your kids on in the, in, in the Little League Football League, the people that are sitting next to you and going crazy and cussing out the, the referees, <laughs> and you've got character and grace and dignity, like you should stand out because your life is on mission. You've said yes to something that's bigger than yourself. I like to think about it like this. Since I've moved away from Pensacola, I have learned that you guys have got a Brazilian steakhouse in town. And this is a big deal. This is a meat lover's paradise. If you were to follow me on social media, you would maybe think that I love my grill and meats as much as I love my family. But I just can't help but to post about it. When I smoke a delicious brisket, I want to share the good news with the world that this brisket was great. I'm a meat lover. And so my first time going to a Brazilian steakhouse where these guys show up with steaks on a sword, I was like, heaven has come to earth. This is amazing. They give you this green circle piece of paper that's green on top, red on the bottom. And as long as that green is on the table, they assume you want more. And they just keep on bringing that meat on the sword and slicing it up and putting it on your plate. And I just wonder, child of God, what it would look like if we just put that green on the table and said, God, wherever you lead me, the answer is yes. My yes is on the table. I see a need, I'm going to meet a need. Even if it means I've got to wonder where the next bill is going to get paid. We live by faith, not by sight, right? Sometimes when you live life in the kingdom, the math doesn't add up. But what, you're, what you'll realize is God will be there to help you. God will be there to guide you. And you'll realize not the person that signs your check is your provider, but God is your provider. And he will take care of you. And the Bible tells us when we lend to the poor, that's a loan that God pays back. But we only experience that when we're willing to Take a leap of faith and say, yes, Lord, where you lead, I will follow. So when you feel the Spirit nudging you in that, in that drive through line of Starbucks to pay it forward and buy somebody's $20 cup of coffee behind you, God may just be planting seeds to guide that person to meet him. You never know what fruit is going to be produced when you say yes. Your yes could be the solution to someone's problem. I've been told you I've got a foster care ministry here. Man, what a beautiful picture when you take in somebody that's unwanted. You understand, I got, I've done foster care. My wife and I are about to have our second foster kid in the, in the next few months. 
It is nothing but a cost to you when you are adopting or fostering someone. But man, isn't that the same story of us and Jesus? Man, didn't we get way more out of this relationship with him? But he was willing to pay that cost. His yes was on the table. Don't keep in mind the Garden of Gethsemane. Even Jesus was like, this is going to be rough. Is there any other way? Guys, it's okay to have doubt. It's okay to have fear. It's okay to have reservation. But I'm just going to go and throw this out there. The thing where you're experiencing fear and you've got just reluctance or this sense of worry and anxiety might be the very place that God is calling you into a greater expression of your faith. Just put yourself out there and see what happens when your yes is on the table. You're going to be blown away with how God wants to use a nobody like you and I to point people to the somebody that has saved our soul. I'm going to wrap up our time here with just a little bit of reflection on this idea of what it means to be a part of this body of Christ. You see, church for the early Christ followers was a lot more like a family than a membership. They didn't have rights and privileges. They had responsibilities. They met each other's needs. They looked around in their community and looked for ways to show tangible acts of the love of Christ to their community and daily salvations. Daily people were converting to Christianity because the body of Christ realized it's not just up to Peter, James, and Paul. It's up to everybody, everyday average Joes like me to share my story, to be quick to forgive people, and ultimately to point the people in my sphere of influence toward the hope that's found in Jesus. And I just want to give you a, a, a promise found in Ephesians chapter 4, just another amazing book that talks about like what the formation of a Christ-centered church should look like. And I think this is a promise that is still true to you and I today, to this congregation here at First City. So speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together at every joint with, with which is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It builds itself up in love. Growth. All these things are amazing outcomes. That's the progress we would love to see here at our home church. But are we willing to engage in the process that it takes to see that kind of progress? It says when each part of the body, the joints, the arms, the legs, the eyes, when each part plays its role, the outcome is health and growth and love. And a little bit of experience I've, I've had with you guys, I'm here to, from Atlanta to cheer you on. I'm here to say y'all are doing that. But in, in a room this size with this many people gathered, I think there's a few of us that realize I'm holding something back. I haven't, said a, I haven't fully said yes to whatever it is that God is calling you into. It could be as simple as just opening the Bible a little bit more often. It could be as gigantic as going on a mission trip or taking in a foster kid. But when each part does its own special work, the body grows in health and love. I saw something on the website that just, just marked me one of y'all's church values says with eagerness we wholeheartedly give ourselves to God and to others 
that thing that's causing you nervousness and hesitation and fear is the very thing that we should meet with eagerness. Yeah, you're not qualified. Yeah, you don't deserve that opportunity. It's only by the grace of God that some schmuck like me gets a microphone and gets to preach the good news. I am, I am, not, I am not the person <laughs> that deserves this opportunity. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I think he sent me here from Atlanta, Georgia to remind somebody that there's a new level of obedience that he's calling you into. That there's a yes to be put on the table. There's something that you're holding back that God wants to use you in a big way to be the answer to someone's unanswered prayer. To be the solution to somebody's problem. To be the catalyst that introduces somebody to Jesus. So would you leave this place today turning that red circle upside down. Saying yes to whatever the opportunity is. Where you lead, Jesus, I will follow. And let's see what happens when a few people in Pensacola, Florida are crazy enough to say yes, aud audacious enough to believe that God could even use me. And a bunch of nobodies could truly tell everybody about the somebody who saved their soul. Friends, I think that's the recipe for revival. Let's pray. Jesus, I would just ask that you move in this church. Lord, how encouraging it is to come back to my hometown and to see people desperate to be used for your will, for your purposes, to be a light in the darkness. Help us to be like Acts chapter 2, to be devoted to one another. Let the love start here, but let it not stop here. Let it spill over into this community and let people be awakened to the light, the love is you, Jesus Christ. In your name, amen.